1970s is anthropology of gypsies or Roma, yeah? and I use the two words interchangeably, um, and we can talk about that later, has very much been uh, dominated by a concern with this reproduction of the, of the gypsy survival as a society or a group or a community, yeah? and with the reproduction of the gypsy's shared identity. So um, there's lots of different theoretical standpoints, but it's always been this kind of perpetuation of the gypsy way of life in the face of these very strong pressures for assimilation that has very much dominated anthropological writing on gypsies. Yeah? And in trying to sort out this kind of question, um, very much the narrative focus and the analytical focus has been on the group yeah? and on individuals only as part of groups. Yeah? And single lives, they have um, appeared in ethnographic texts on gypsies or Roma only in as much as they have illustrated this kind of engagement with this communal reproduction of gypsiness, we the gypsies, yeah? And people are, have been treated very much um, in order to um, um, illustrate this reproduction of gypsiness, gypsiness as, as identity, gypsiness as identification, gypsiness as morality, or gypsiness as kind of old-fashioned society or old-fashioned culture, yeah? And, and so I think that in doing this, this treating individuals in this way, anthropologists of gypsies are not that different from anthropologists of other groups, this, this way of treating the individual allegorically. Yeah, um, as an instance or as an example of the general. Yeah, this we know. This, this is what anthropologists do most of the time. What I find interesting is that in treating individuals as exemplars, anthropologists have um, their anthropological strategies come very close to the Roma's own strategies, um, because when you look through the ethnographic literature. Um, to start with, you see kind of an early emphasis from Judith Oakley and Sutherland in the 1970s on issues to do with metaphor and the body as a metaphor of society and so on. But very soon, you see an emphasis on, on, on metonym. Yeah? Um, and what you see is uh, uh, different ethnographers describing the different imagined communities of various gypsy groups, not as integrated organisms or as societies, but as a kind of um, amorphous aggregates of archetypes, yeah? as a kind of groups of moral beings which are equally positioned vis-a-vis -vis the world. Yeah? And these ethnographers have all talked about this uh, performative character of gypsy identity and the fact that this is the person who brings about, enables people to imagine this conceptualization of us, the gypsies, as a group. Yeah? And, and what they talk about is across all, all kinds of different ethnographic contexts, the kind of um, dominance of the metonymic over the metaphoric, yeah? In particular, when conceptualizing the person's place in the community and in the world. So, for example, Patrick Williams, who's a very well-known French um, anthropologist of gypsies, he talks about how these uh, Calderas gypsies in Paris, he says they carry their center with them, yeah? And they do not place their source of the communal identity in a book, in the past, in a single person, and he says, the authenticity is never beyond the community that they form in the here and now. It's not in the space nor in time. Yeah? And they rely on mimesis. Um, and, and, and he says, and, and, and on the continuing reaffirmation of bonds of solidarity, of competition. Yeah? And Michael Stewart, and you know, people know his book on gypsies, talks about how gypsy families in Hungary, there may be one gypsy family or a hundred, it doesn't matter. 
so long as there is a small group, two gypsies doing things the gypsy way. That's enough to imagine ourselves, the gypsies existing in the world. Yeah? And I have taken a similar line in my own work on gitanos, Spanish gypsies living in Madrid, because what I have tried to argue is that these, these people I work with in the slums of Madrid, they, they have, when they think of themselves as a community, they think, they think in terms of commonality, not of community or social cohesion. Yeah? So they have no notion of society, they don't have any concept of a, of a structure, of a statuses that you would, individuals would occupy and they would, would sort of vacate as they die. And they don't have any notion that their the <coughs> private interest should sort of serve the interest, the, the bigger good, yeah? Uh, um, that, that, they, that the parochial interest would sustain the group at large, yeah? And it's very much the notion that the gendered person performs these gypsy laws. And this con concept of the gypsy law is very important to the paper, and I'm going to be talking about this a lot. So they have a kind of imagined community which is amorphous, is boundaryless, and is very much contextual, and is very much grounded on this assumption of moral mimesis among gypsies. And it responds to the identity demands of each moment. And it works in tandem, this imagined community, with these very strong centrifugal forces uh, that sort of shape gypsy life, and there is constant feuding, and the Spanish government is constantly intervening and splitting gypsy, apart, gypsy groups apart, and there's lots of class differences and economic differences. So there's lots of things dividing gypsies from each other. But in spite of these very strong centrifugal forces, and this is what I find very striking, is the, the gypsies have a very sort of very highly verbalized and highly objectified and highly reified set of moral standards, which they call the gypsy law, the leyes gitanas or the gypsy laws. Yeah? And um, this is very quite rigid, I think. Yeah? And what I have tried to argue is that although they do not have a concept of society, they have a very well-developed concept of culture as defining who we are, as a kind of objectified set of rules and customs that differentiates us gitanos from what they call the payos, and the word payo means non-gypsies, a very negative, uh, kind of derogative word. And other anthropologists have talked about Romani, so the Roma way of doing things. So I think this kind of object, very, very reified, very verbalized, very reflected upon set of rules, um, which is not written down, um, it's sort of part of the, of the kind of way of thinking about themselves of other groups of gypsies as well. Yeah? And then what happens then is that the processes of identification by reference to this gypsy law is sort of aim at this assertion of an unambiguous Gitano identity. So these very flexible processes of identification in, a, in daily life are all the time negotiating this assertion of what should be an unambiguous gypsy identity. So what I think is that if you look through these different anthropological accounts of gypsies, what you see is that social life in Hungary, in Spain, among these various groups, of course with differences and so on, but what you see in common is a kind of drive towards what I would call something like cultural closure, yeah? Um, kind of towards this affirmation of unequivocal expectations regarding behavior, which divide the world between we are the good ones, we are the gypsies, and you are the awful bad ones, immoral, non-gypsies. Yeah? Um, and so these expectations define belonging. So when you look <coughs> through the literature, you see these accounts of purity and pollution taboos, economic practices, ways of dealing with the dead, uh, wedding ceremonies, and stuff like that. 
And you see that in all these accounts, what you see is anthropologists talking about, about the gypsies explaining the world and the, their place in the world through these very explicitly dualistic um, and categories yeah? and moral evaluations. Um, and of course, we are anthropologists, so we know that these categories shift meaning all the time, and we know that the relationship to practice is fluid, and we know that there is a lot of rhetorical distortion and simplification of what really goes on in daily life. And also we know that these dichotomies, they are not just gypsies, but they, you know, they're not just some kind of weird kind of gypsy worldview, but they have to do with what goes on in the rest of the world. They draw from much bigger pan-European, national, local, cultural themes, cultural preoccupations, and social concerns and stuff like that. But Patrick Williams nonetheless talks about this idea that there is no halfway position, and that among gypsies, persons have to be either in or out, and there is no intermediate point. Yeah? And I think that this very much sums up how the sort of gypsies' expectations of themselves as they have been described by anthropologists. Yeah? Um, so when you look at um, anthropological accounts, you see that gypsy worldviews and everyday practices are very much dominated by this search of, of totality, of integrity and permanence, and people wanted to be clear, this is like this and that's it. Yeah? So there is, in other words, when we look at these gypsy ethnographies, you see kind of um, gypsy life being shaped on the one hand by this avoidance of moral ambiguity, yeah? and on the other hand, this emphasis on the person as the exemplar, the performer of gypsy distinctiveness. And these two things go hand in hand. And they are what, what sort of makes gypsies what they are, distinctive as gypsies, yeah? So what I want to do in this paper is to sort of investigate sort of to what extent this is depiction analytically sort of useful or valid by looking at the life of one woman um, that I call Claudia Gonzalez, who's a Gitano close friend of mine, who last year, just before turning 40, um, left her family and her husband, including one child, young child, age seven, and um, in order to have a relationship with a Moroccan illegal immigrant, age 24. Um, and what you see is that her trajectory, in, and we have been friends for almost 20 years, uh, so her trajectory is one of sort of growing aesthetic and moral openness to alternative experiences and alternative worldviews. And she talks all the time, and she writes, and when we talk to her, she talks about opening doors onto new worlds. This is how she talks about it, yeah? So I have, in the paper that Meta has read, I have talked about this as kind of the unfolding of a cosmopolitan subjectivity. And um, I think her trajectory is a kind of, is, is a, is, it sort of shows a growing tendency towards a kind of ambiguation, the capacity to think and to live outside these clear-cut moral categories, yeah? Um, and I'm borrowing here from Hugh Wardle and from, and from uh, Deborah Battaglia, who write about ambiguation, yeah? So, um, Hugh Wardle calls it the capacity to avert the reduction of experience to simply opposed categories. <coughs> and this capacity challenges head-on this gypsy emphasis on binary moral categories, but it also engages it, yeah? So, what I am going to to look at in, by telling you about the life of Claudia is this intersection between this, this the Gitano law, in particular Gitano ideas of, of, um, of female behavior, which are very much explicit, very verbalized, yeah, 
on the one hand, and um, on the other hand, uh, the, 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 the perspectives, the, the things, the actions, and so on, of Claudia and some of her relatives, her closest relatives. And I'm going to look at three moments in her life. The first is the early 1990s, which is when we met, when I did my first team work for my PhD. Then 2007, when she was involved in a big protest against the local government. And then the last year, since she left her family in order to live with this young guy. Yeah? And when you see her confrontation, sort of the unfolding confrontation with her family, you kind of can, at first sight, you kind of can read it in quite clear sort of binary terms. On the one hand, sort of you can see kind of two incompatible ways of locating the person in the world. Yeah, one uh, which is very much about ambiguation, and the other one on the avoidance of ambiguation. One which is about the power of the individual to be the protagonist of his life or her or her life, yeah, to achieve kind of some kind of self-realization. And the other one, the person as a kind of metonymic exemplar, gypsy exemplar, I and mean, gypsy I live the gypsy way. One which is very much about heroic individualism and distinctiveness, and the other one is about competitive egalitarianism and amoral feminism, which is very much kind of what the flavor of gypsy life. So one would be Pajo or non gypsy, and the other one would be Kitano. But this is just too simplistic, of course, because her attitudes and her actions and the attitudes and actions of her relatives. What you see is much more complicated interplay between, on the one hand, yes, a very strong drive for moral closure or cultural closure, moral certainty, and then a kind of, a kind of search for ambiguity, a, a search for openness and for alternatives. Yeah? And, and what you see is that there are these, these people are, I'm going to be talking about, on the one hand, are very reflexively engaged with their identity, and very verbally and sort of explicitly engaged with their identity, and they see themselves as living by the gypsy law or failing to live by the gypsy law. But they are also sort of searching for existential alternatives, moral alternatives, uh, compromises, practical compromises, and moral compromises. Yeah? And I think what you see then is that this drive for cultural closure, this emphasis on the individual as exemplar, which is so dominant in anthropological accounts, is very much there. It reaches deeply into the lives of people, and it appears to be total. And while it's total, it's not total. <laughs> you see what I mean? While it has a huge impact in people's lives, there are also other things going on at the same time. So um, I just wanted to show you first, if I find it under my papers, um, this, which is, is a picture of Claudia, and she's being, this is her wedding, um, her wedding, and this is the cover of my book. And in the, the in, in here, you see, this is a wedding ceremony, her virginity has just been tested, she's been deflowered by an older, experienced woman in front of all the women, um, and then the man, and this is her father, dance her around. And this is kind of the, the, the most sort of uh, effervescent moment of gypsy singularity, this is we you know, this is what makes us gypsies. This is the this kind of apex of gypsiness. And I think this exemplifies her as an exemplar used by me in the cover of my book and by her by you know by the gypsies as a whole. So I thought it was a neat kind of picture. And I'm not the only one who uses the wedding in this way because I have another book here, another gypsy wedding when they you know <laughs> so of books on gypsies in Spain about you know three out of four will have gypsy weddings on the cover. Yeah? <laughs> So, um, so on the one hand, when you look at Claudia's life, on the one hand, you see it very much as a kind of this is, and, uh, and Nigel Rapport talks that we as anthropologists need to really appreciate 
individuals who break out of the world in which they are born. And he says, individuals who, who achieve a consciousness beyond the social, the social and the cultural environment in which they are born. And on the one hand, with, with Claudia's story, you see that. You see her breaking out of these. But at the same time, this is a gypsy. This is very much a Gitano story. It's not just about individualism sort of breaking above everything else. Yeah? And what you see is very much tensions and contradictions which are very much part of gypsy life. And um, on, on, at the same time, on the one hand, her story, you can read her story as being about immigrants, gypsies, and non-gypsies in the kind of poorest uh, neighborhoods of Spain, of Madrid, and other big Spanish cities. But you also see passion, impulse, grief, determination, and, and, and I think this makes, at least me as an anthropologist, think, well, how am I to explain things as personality, circumstance, and contingency? Um, so this is what I've been trying to talk about in this paper. Yeah? So the first uh, period, I, I'm, I'm just getting onto the ethnography now, uh, is the 1990s. Yeah? So I met Claudia, um, and Claudia and I, we are exactly the same age, so we just turned 40. Um, and, um, and I'm from the same city, I'm also from Madrid, and I grew up in a very different area of the city. Yeah? So I grew up in the kind of um, middle class center of the city, and she grew up at the same time as me in the last years of the Franco dictatorship in the very poor uh, south suburbs of Madrid. So I met her through her sister, Dolores, who's an important character in the story, and she was one of my key informants in this small gypsy ghetto built by the government where I was doing my field work. And Dolores was a pastor's wife at the local evangelical church. And gypsies have been converted to evangelism over the last sort of 30 years. And she was very nice to me. I think she wanted to convert me. And, um, and, um, and when I needed a place to live, she offered, um, she couldn't offer me her house because I am a, a non-gypsy and the reputation of her husband would have been, uh, non-gypsy women are thought to be very sexually um, threatening. Um, so her husband's reputation would have been damaged, but she had a younger sister, Claudia, who was prepared to take me in. So I moved in with her and we hit it off straight away and we became really close very fast. Now at this time, Claudia and Dolores were young women, young matrons in the mid-twenties. They were good sellers, good money makers, and they were well known to the other gitanos in the area, and they were uh, members of one of the most powerful extended families in the area. And their daily life was about the evangelical church, their children, and they were very concerned with being proper gypsy women, so they wouldn't wear trousers, they wouldn't smoke, they wouldn't drink, they wouldn't interact with unrelated men, and both of them had been married to this gypsy ceremony where their virginity had been sort of publicly tested and celebrated. And um, Claudia, there are four sisters, and Claudia was the second, Dolores was the oldest, and she had gone to school until she was 12, and she talks about having had Claudia friends, gypsy and non-gypsy friends in school. And she says, I've always been interested in the way of life of the Payas because they had more freedom. And she talks at that time, they could go home whenever they wanted, and I had to be home at eight, for example. So typical kind of teenage occupations. Yeah? At 15, her parents arranged her marriage to a first cousin of her mother. And this, she says to me, it was an arranged marriage, but it wasn't a forced marriage. So she was quite happy to marry this guy because she trusted her mother, who thought this was a good guy for her. 
and her husband is called Juanon, and to start with, they shared a flat with her mother, and then the mother died, and they went on living there, and that's the flat where I moved in. Now, throughout her married life, she lived very much within these confines of her extended family, and the gypsies have this thing that I call endosociability, constantly with each other. You can never have half an hour on your own. If you have an hour on your own, there's something wrong with you. Yeah? you I mean, it's very typical of other places. Um, and when she married, she lost touch with her non-gypsy friends, school friends, and then the non-gypsies really just became part of the of kind of the, the background in her life. And they would be the doctor, the woman who um, sort of took care of her children in the kindergarten, and so on. But she didn't have any sort of sustained relationships with non-gypsies. Yeah. Uh, but at this point in the early 90s, she was very aware, like the other gypsies that I met, of being immersed within a pilot world. And she was very preoccupied, like the other people I met, with um, the idea that the non-gypsies were immoral and the gypsies were moral, um, and so on. Yeah? And she always wanted to behave bien, properly. So this meant being uh, displaying kind of sexual virtue in her dress, obeying her husband, keeping a good house, being an efficient provider, and so on. And I always thought that she was good at what she was doing. I always said, like, a misfit. Um, you know, with the gypsies doing fieldwork was a pain. Uh, in chemistry, when I was doing my undergraduate and my PhD, I was out of place. I, I sort of always felt out of place. And this woman always struck me as being well in her skin, you know. Now, her husband was very different. The husband was clearly not good at being a gypsy. He was not happy. And I couldn't talk with him on my own very, very easily. But I could see that he didn't go out with other men, like men tended to do. He didn't see his brothers, his relationship with his patrilineal sort of relatives was not great. And also, he tended to spend his evenings and his sort of afternoons alone in the house, watching a big sort of collection of National Geographic films that he had. And he would just see these National Geographic films obsessively. And later on, and, and playing this very primitive, this 1992-1993 uh, computer game. And then his computer, as time has gone by now, he has this amazing kind of uh, PlayStation 5 or whatever it is. Um, and he would always ask me very tentatively, you know, what is life abroad like? What do you eat? What do people do? And so on. So he had an interest in outside kind of these um, complexities of the gypsy social world, which was everybody else's obsession, which I thought set him apart from all the gypsies. But Carmen and I, we always sort of, uh, sorry, Claudia and I, we always sort of um, hypothesized because Claudia had told me that he had had a very long relationship with a non-gypsy woman. And, and Claudia was sure she, he was still in love with her. So we always wondered, is he still in love with her? Does he love her? Will Claudia make him happy in the end? Things like this, yeah? So uh, we worried a lot about him and whether he would eventually be happy or not. Um, at the same time, he, although he was, didn't seem like a happy guy, uh, he took his responsibilities as a gypsy kind of head of the household very seriously. And one of these responsibilities was keeping an eye on Claudia and me and making sure we behave properly. Now, very soon after I started my field work, and Mete has heard this already, but we started deceiving him. So we would say, we're going to go to, uh, to the hospital such and such is ill, or we have to get stock for the for selling in the streets or whatever. And then we would take clothes, we would go to the underground and in the bathroom we would change. And we would change non-gypsy. We would dress up as non-gypsies with trousers, which we would never we have, I mean would, uh, Claudia would never wear trousers and so on. And then we would go and be tourists in Madrid. 
and we would go to the museums, we went to every museum, we would go to restaurants and cafes, we went to the university, she met my whole family, she met my friends and so on, yeah? And, uh, and, and for her, this was a woman who had never been outside this push, she discovered Madrid, it was like completely like being a tourist. And it was a great adventure, just like for me it was a great adventure doing field work for her, it was also a great adventure. And um, especially she felt that it was really amazing that she could talk freely with men that were not her relatives. And after one of our outings, she wrote a letter to her little daughter. Um, and in this letter she said, I wish for you a life of freedom. And we talked a lot about whether, am I free, are you free, what does freedom mean for women and stuff like that. And this is basically, oh, the, oh sorry. Ah, it's not showing, isn't it? And, oh, that one doesn't come out, does it? I mean, one is kind of not showing. I wanted you to show all the, that one. Quick theme and the compressor. I needed to see his picture. Oh, oh well. I wanted to show a really nice picture where they are all there together, Carmen and myself and everybody. Uh, everybody don't see. Anyway, so um, in the 1990s, then, um, when we were having these escapades and so on. Uh, Claudia and her husband, Juanon, had kind of quite complex understandings of what the non-gypsies were like and kind of ambiguous relationships with the non-gypsy identity. And they were different, um, sorry, they were not different from other gypsies that I knew in their pride in being gypsies and their worry with upholding the Gitano law, the gypsy law. And they would give me these long strings of stereotypes. In fact, I was listening to a tape that Claudia and I made the other day and she says to me, you know, I said, when I was doing my film fest, everybody would tell me that the non-gypsy women were whores and wanted to have sex with men all the time. And then she embarked again and said, yes, and you always kill each other in terrorism and in wars. And I wrote, tick. And you always put all people in, in, in homes, tick. And those were the three things that were always, again, and 20 years later, she was telling me exactly the same. So women want sex, everybody, men and women are dirty, do not respect the elders, and so on. And they really wanted to keep up appearances. And shortly after I left my, the field at that time, one of Claudia's cousins had an affair with, her, with a married gypsy, and she helped her mother to hash it up, yeah? And make sure the men didn't find out about it. So this concern with keeping up appearances was very important. But at the same time, Claudia and Juanon really wanted to find out um, what life outside the gypsy world is like, and this is how they would, we, you know, there was something outside, and they always use these metaphors of these words outside. They wanted to know what life outside was like. Now, Juanon, who's quite miserable, I think, in himself, uh, who had had this uh, long relationship with a, with a, with a prior woman, um, um, this kind of dissatisfaction with his life as a gypsy led into a kind of a growing introversion and distancing himself from his family and his children and his wife. Yeah? And he was, I think, still in love with this non-gypsy woman. He was unable to feel attraction or desire for, for Claudia and this was one of the big problems in the relationship that she has a lot of uh, sexual needs and he doesn't seem to have them. Um, uh, but at this at the same time, he was very much committed to the gypsy law. So I think he found himself through the years very increasingly frustrated. And Claudia, who's, who's an extremely positive and upbeat person, yeah, she has a really positive temperament, this similar dissatisfaction led her in a very different direction. 
include kind of an openness and a search for new positive experiences outside the, the kind of the gypsy community. So then we kind of jump a lot of years, about 15 years, uh, to 2007. And in the years between 1993 and 2007, Claudia and I stayed in very close contact, sending packages to and fro. Um, Claudia likes boot screens, yeah? So I'm always putting these packages of boot screen, and then she sends me stuff I cannot find here. So we always send packages to each other. We had children at the same time. Um, and then um, when sort of I finally sort of had a proper teaching career and, her, and so on, she became a grandmother. And she became kind of a very well-respected matron, um, a kind of a mainstay of the evangelical church. Very, she said, I, I was a model. She, she talks about it like this. But she continued to be very much subjected to Juanon, very much a kind of um, a traditional or proper, like she would say, proper gypsy, gypsy woman. And she would need his permission for going out, for going to church, and things like that. And she complained very much through these years that he was uninterested in sex and demonstrative. And at time when, as time went by, he became more violent. And he, she says that he undermined her self-esteem. So she, for example, she was telling me, at the time, through these years, she says, the father of my children used to tell me that my legs were crooked. And he had these obsessions with her legs were being crooked. Uh, uh, from the legs up, that I was stupid, that I was good for nothing. And sometimes, she said, he would tell me so often that I would come to believe it. And once I asked him, but do you love me at all? And she says, well, with time, one becomes fond even of a dog, yeah, with time. And she says, and this is what he said. She said, and I'll never forget, he said, he went right inside me, this statement of her husband of 20 years. Yeah? And then in 2007, suddenly her life changed very radically because her youngest daughter reached six, and then she started school. And then they invited her to join the PTA, the Parent Teacher Association. And then they asked her to be the president, to whether she would stand for president. And she stood, and she won, and she became the president. And she found herself at this time of big crisis, because at this point, the local government decided to do an exchange of the schools where there are basically two schools in the area. One nice big school full of gypsy children and immigrant children. One small crappy school full of all the children who don't want to be with the gypsies and the immigrants and go there. Now, those are all cramped because it's a smaller, older school. So the government thought, hmm, what are we going to do? We're going to change them. We'll put the gypsies and the immigrants here and all the local non-gypsy children there. And of course, people didn't like it. And they began to complain. The press heard about this. And they organized a big campaign. And because she happened to be the president of the PTA at that time, there she was at the head of this campaign. Yeah? And this is her talking to a big, um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a press conference yeah? about the school. And she's pointing to the school and, and what they've done, what they want to do the school. Now, um, the, and at this point, she, she was in the newspapers. And this is, um, this is a clip from the internet. And this is her arguing and explaining why this is not right, and, um, and so on, yeah? So that's it. Um, so she was very much in, in protests and so on. And what happened then is that she loved every second of things, organizing, talking to people, being in the news, being on the radio. She just thrived, yeah? But at the same time, everybody was keeping a close eye on her, all the gypsies, yeah? And she says, I knew there was a lot of envy towards me, lots of gossip. And they would say, this one, uh, she believes so much of herself, she thinks she's a little paya. She pretends she's a little paya. 
And all the time, people wanted to see how she was relating to non-gypsy men, what, how she dressed, her looks, her demeanor, and so on. At the same time, although she was at this very, very close scrutiny, she really managed to carve a new role for herself. And this is very unusual for a gypsy woman from this kind of background to take this position. Um, and I think it's because, perhaps, it's because her role in the school was very much an extension of her role as a mother. Yeah? And uh, she was very careful to be seen as a proper, um, decent kind of uh, virtuous woman, to take good care of her husband, always have the dinner ready, always this kind of stuff, and always going to the evangelical church. And she says, I'm quoting here, I was on a very high pedestal. I had everybody's esteem. I could walk with my head held very high. Yeah? And her family, who were a bit sort of iffy about it, also felt proud that they, she was doing this stuff. And even Juanon, who at this time was being really not nice to her inside the family and undermining her confidence, was okay and would let her go to these things. Yeah? So it was very much at this point that she was a respected gypsy matron. And then it was as, as a gypsy matron, as a respected woman, that she became a leader of men and women, gypsies and non-gypsies. And in the, in the clip, you see her actually, these are some of the protesters, and there's some gypsies and non-gypsies. And she's very much at the head of what is going on. Yeah? Um, and she was um, very gratified, in particular, to see her father deferring to her. So she said, for example, when we went into a room and there would be the equivalent MPs and the press and so on, and I would always stay at the back and I would let the men go first. And then it was brilliant, she says, when they would call me and say, no, no, she's the boss. She's the one who has to be at the front. And she talks about being extremely happy about this. Yeah? Uh, and she talks and she says, I loved it because we felt we were doing something completely different. And she says, it was a totally different world, and you're pleased and at peace with yourself because you know you're going to achieve something good. In fact, they failed and they didn't get it, and the, and the children were more exchanged, you know, anyway. And, and this notion that she was doing something different, she talks about like it gave her a kind of respite from a life at home that she was finding more and more oppressive, yeah? And not just at home, but in life as a gypsy woman. And she says, I'm quoting here, she says, I thought it was absurd, and she uses absurd, that we all gitanas had to do exactly the same things, getting up, going to work, then church, pray, pray, pray. But if you said, if you expressed it, gosh, what monotony, people, think, people thought you were crazy. And then she said, freedom of expression and freedom of action. Those are the two things that I lacked. I got fed up with praying and praying on the house and the children, and on top of that, I didn't love the person I was with. But she says, through the Parents Association and the campaign, uh, she says, for once in my life, I felt not better, but more important, especially when a non-gypsy would come to ask me to fill in a form or do something like that. I never thought something like this would change my life so much. The truth is, the truth is that, that on that moment, I felt that I would do something else Behind, besides washing up and working and taking care of my husband and my children, which up to then was all I had done all my life. Because, she says, from the moment you're born as a gypsy woman, you're taught that you're born to marry and to respect your husband and have children and work outside and inside the house. And if you can cope with this, well, then you have reached your goal. Yeah? So I think that this business of the school really enabled her to develop a very positive sense of herself um, as an actor, what we would call an actor, and to access this kind of pio world, and especially to imagine that her life could be different, yeah? that, that her life could develop in, in different directions. 
Now, we jump kind of two years ahead, and through sort of the meet, as, as the school protest was going on, the, the kind of um, life, the marriage life between Claudia and Juanon became more and more difficult, and Juanon became more violent, and Claudia took the children and left the home a few times to go with her father. And, and, but every time, and I counted five times when she left, um, she was told, she, she was persuaded she had to go back. And she says, my father, she says, pays a lot of attention to what people said. And he had a lot of pride in us daughters because we were all honest, hardworking, clean, and good women. And we have all had a lot of respect towards my father. So sometimes, even if I was dying inside with rage because he was making me go back to my husband, it was out of respect that I allowed him to join me again with my husband, and I didn't dare tell him the truth about my feelings. Yeah? So the relationship, as the marriage deteriorated, the relationship between Claudia and her father turned more and more around this gitano law. This is what we gitanos do. This is what we should do as gitanos. Yeah? And, and, uh, and every time, because Juanon's violence hadn't been very extreme, yes, he beat her up, but not too badly. She had to return, it was her duty as a mother and as a husband. And all the time, they would use this example of this cousin who um, was married to a drug addict who beat her very badly. And the gypsies, when they beat the women, they use these fighting sticks that they used to fight with each other, which are long and they have a lead end. And they, this is what they used to beat them up. So her sister, Dolores, explained to me, she said, look, you know her aunt Maria, she says, her husband beats the life out of her day in and day out. You've seen it yourself, and he's a drug addict to boot. And you know what happens to drug addicts. They cannot get it up, she says. So she doesn't even get that little bit of joy of sex from him because he can't have sex. He doesn't bring in any money, and there she is. She's been with him always. Why? Because she's a good woman, that's why. Yeah? And then she said, uh, because Juanon tells, you know, so, just because Juanon tells Claudia that she's no good, she says, so what? I tell that to my husband every day. He gives her a slap now and then, so what? That's not sufficient cause to live, not according to our laws. Among you, pious, it's different. Now, towards the end of 2008, and I think because she was really feeling confident in herself, as through the school campaign, she fell in love with Habib, who's this Moroccan illegal immigrant who works uh, helping gypsies unload and load stuff at the markets, at the open air markets where they work. And she writes very eloquently about looking at each other between the sort of across the, the different um, uh, selling places, yeah? And first looking and then talking through the months and then finally getting sort of going off together, yeah? <coughs> so they started flirting uh, and then began a, sex, a secret sexual relationship and eloped together a year ago in the spring of 2009. And she lived away for, from her family for a year. Um, soon after she eloped, they actually tracked them back, tracked them and brought her back by force. Uh, but she managed to elope again. She asked me for some money. I sent her enough money so she could actually elope and live on that money for, for a month or two. And they went off to the north of Spain and they tried to find work. They couldn't find work, so they went back to Madrid. And they, last summer, they spent a very hard summer in Madrid, in, the, in summer there is no, nothing. The city empties. They couldn't find a job, they couldn't find anywhere to live, um, and so on. Yeah? And then finally, uh, and they were living in these very crowded flats where perhaps uh, people share beds, so you have a bed for 12 hours and somebody else gets the same bed for another 12 hours. Immigrants, illegal immigrant flats. 
And then finally, at the end of August, she got a job working for a family as a domestic servant, a family that didn't know she was a gypsy, and she earned 700 euros a month. And with these 700 euros, they could rent a flat, a, a, a room in a flat shared just with another couple. And they began to build a stable life together, and they began to take the first steps to making um, his uh, status legal. And this is a picture of Habib and Claudia and myself in one of my visits um, to Madrid that we took with my computer um, while we were working. So that's Claudia and that's Habib, who's um, quite a nice guy. Uh, so throughout the year that she was with Habib, um, Claudia talked with her sisters sporadically, not very often, mostly they communicated through me. They would send me letters and then, because it was very important to keep her whereabouts secret. So they would send me letters and then I had to read them to her on the phone, editing the nasty bits, like I'm gonna burn you alive when I find you, kind of stuff, or you're never gonna see your children again. So, because she didn't want to hear the nasty bits, um, and so on, and she never met them. And during all this time, her relationship with her family revolved around one idea, which is that because she was an adulterer, and she had dishonored her husband, and her father, and her sisters, and her brother-in-law, and her children, um, she had totally forfeited all her rights. And none of her relatives would see her, and she could not visit the area where, she li where they lived under pain of being beaten very badly or killed, and she wasn't allowed any contact with her children at all. So she couldn't see her children, she couldn't know how the children were. So she used to ring the, 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 the director of the school, the, the principal, and ask him about her daughter and how the daughter was. Although the, her family went and threatened the, the the, the principal's life as well. Um, so uh, the whole idea was that um, Claudia, Claudia's family, Dolores, her, her other sisters, and everybody, and Claudia herself very much opposed the well-being of her children to her own well-being. Yeah, because the Gypsy law says if you live with a man, if you if you leave your husband for a man, you lose your right to your children. Hence, in living with a man, she was abandoning her children. So they would tell her, you haven't left your husband, you've left your children. Yeah? And she saw herself very much as a bad mother. Yeah? So um, she was very much under no doubt that if she had taken the, the littlest child with her, they, they would have tried to kill her. Yeah? And at one point, I, I talked with Dolores, and I said to her, well, what did she, because all along I was trying to, to push her into getting a solicitor in order to get legal access to her child, yeah? And I talked with Dolores about this, and she shouted at me, and she said, tell her not to even think about it, not to bring the payos into this, she said. She has to remember she's a gypsy woman, yeah? My father will cut her throat without a doubt, he will, she said. So Dolores, who's quite bullshit, uh, was very vocal in sort of phrasing this Claudia's decision to leave in very in terms that were totally unambiguous. She said, and, and this is what Claudia says, a thousand times Dolores and the others have told me that if I dare to steal my children and take them away, then even if I hide in another country, they will find me and they will kill me. And they saw her behavior completely in sexual terms. It was the sign for sex that had motivated her to leave her children. And um, when they found them for the first time and they brought her back to her family, um, kind of something happened that I, I think is quite revealing. So I'll just read you how, how Claudia explained, explained it. She said she lied. They basically um, cornered Habib in the street with guns and, and weapons and stuff. Yeah? 
and Dolores lied to Habib and told him she just wanted to make sure I was all right, and he let her come up to the flat where she was hiding. And it was awful. Her words were awful. She was swearing and mentioning my poor dead mother and mentioning the dead among the gypsies is really bad. Um, they don't mention the names of the dead. I'll never forgive her for that. And doing horrible things and saying, I know you're being fucked in the front and in the back. And she took his gypsy in the front and in the back. And then Dolores lied on the bed and she lifted her skirt and she'd say to have you fuck me in the front and then she um, kneel and fall legs and say, and now you fuck me in the back. And, and Habib apparently was amazed to see this behavior. And she said, now that you fuck, let's go home now. You've given joy to your body, let's go home now. Do what you have to do and take care of your children. So they very much interpreted her motivation to leave and to stay with Habib in sexual terms. And they say to me, she's being dominated by her cunt. Um, totally. And it was very much about wanting to have sex. And not only did she want to have sex, but she wanted to have sex with a moor, which to them is umoro, the lowest category of non-gypsy man possible. Yeah. And, the, and the, when the gypsies, although the, the Moroccan immigrants talk to the gypsies as cousins and call them cousins, the gypsies don't think the Moroccan immigrants are their cousins. Um, and she says, and Dolores says to me, many payas, she says, take moors as gigolos. How can they do that? It's disgusting. Even when I have to touch their hands when they give me change to the market, yuck, I feel revolted. How the women can allow themselves to be touched by them, I don't know. And then when the moors have their papers, uh, they dump the payas and that's that. And it will happen to Claudia, mark my words, he'll leave her. In one year or two or three, she'll find herself completely alone in, in the world. <coughs> So the family knew that Claudia had been treated, mistreated psychologically and physically by Juanon, uh, but nonetheless there was no doubt that she was selfish and evil and they talked a lot about the fact that she was being possessed by the devil and I, I'm kind of beginning to look at their understanding because although she was possessed, her agency was still there, it was her decision. Her agency wasn't obliterated by the fact that she was being possessed. Um, and they would say, you know, you know how, gitanos, how we gitanos are. You know how we do things. She's fallen as low as she can, and there's nothing worse a woman can do short of killing her children than living for an, with another man. Yeah? And they were relentless in wanting her to come back. She had to come back, and that was it. And they would tell me that Juanon was not a proper man. They would call him a mandilon, a man who, a man who wears an apron, or a rision, like a laughable man. Yeah? And he says, because, and Dolores would tell me, because my husband, all the other brothers-in-law, they would never take us back. But he's not a proper man, he's a mandilon, he wears an apron, yeah? Um, and he has a two offers of two virgins that his sister brought to the house, and he doesn't want either of them because he wants her. And then she said, so my sister, do come home, do come back. You've had your fun, you've known love, you've given joy to your body, you've been mistress of your life for a year. Now it's the turn to be brave and come back. And she needs to have the same courage she had to leave which let me tell you took a lot of courage, and that courage, she needs it now to come back to her children who are still very little and need her, yeah? And they would say her house is being eaten by shit, and they told her this story actually, which was that her husband couldn't find knickers for her daughter. So he gave her a big pair of knickers and tied them with a knot. And this was an example of how horrible <laughs> this was. In fact, when I told my husband, because I was horrified at this idea of this political girl, my husband said, what a good idea, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and then I told Claudia, and we kind of consoled ourselves with this notion that it wasn't such a good idea after all to tie the knickers with a knot. 
So um, very much the notion that the, everybody needed her and that was it, yeah? Um, and, that, uh, and, that her, and that her husband would take her, but he would take her because he was pariolite. He was not a proper gypsy because a proper gypsy man wouldn't take a woman who had been in bed with another man for a year. Yeah? And in the letters, he said, I had to read over the phone, Juanon seemed very desperate for her to return, and he would say, I need you, your children need you, your little home needs you, see how much I love you, I'm waiting for you to return with open arms even after all you've done. But in the same letters, he would threaten her quite badly, and he would say, unless you return, you'll never see them again. And he would write, they are mine, with big capitals. Yeah? And um, she herself, Claudia, also interpreted her leaving the family as a, a sort of failure to uphold the gypsy law. And she would describe herself as a bad mother and a bad woman. And she'd say, they see me as a whore, worse than a whore, and I know I'm a whore. I've left my children for a man. But then she'd say, but don't I have the right to be happy? With Habib, she says, I have felt what it is to be treated as a real woman, a real person. I know what it is to be really loved and treated with respect, something that never happened to me before. They think that one can live without love, but, and they think it's all about sex, but it isn't it. And he, I remember her telling me, it was very moving, how she'd come back after working all day in the house of his family, and he would be sweaty, and he'd take her sweaty feet and kiss her feet. He loved her so much. And she said, can you imagine a man that loves you so much that you come after working for 12 hours, and he kisses your feet? How can I give this guy up? Yeah. Um, so she felt she couldn't go back to Juanon after this. Yeah? I couldn't be happy there, not just because she had to go back to her husband, because I wouldn't fit in there. I would be happy with my children, but not in the world in which they live. I no longer fit there, she said. And she talked very much about small things, like Habib, whenever they want to get a video, they would actually choose to get the video. And, and Juanon had never allowed her to choose, yeah, because she was a man. Or he would change his plans and so on. Yeah? And also, at this point, finally, after so many years, she felt she could do things that she had never been able to do. So she came to visit me in St. Andrews for the first time in her life. She took a plane on her own, left Spain, and came to visit me. And we gave this really nice, well, I thought it was lovely, presentation to the department, where we talked about what she talked to the students and to the other staff, and what it was like to be an anthropological informant, and, um, and what was it like to work with me, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah? And, um, and she enjoyed, you know, again, we, she would go to museums and galleries and all that, yeah. And um, so this is when she came to visit, and this is my family and us, and we went to this place in St. Andrew. So she spent some days with her, and she said, I'm doing field work now. Um, and then she, we, she, we went to Edinburgh together, and she would always take these pictures, where she would point at whatever was so relevant. So she's pointing and saying, this is, look at this, this whole picture is important. <laughs> And I have hundreds of pictures of her in Edinburgh pointing at the right places. And this is when we gave the talk in St. Andrews, um, where she's explaining uh, what, you know, talking about anthropology and her take on anthropology. Shortly after this, on the 12th, 20th of April, she returned to her husband. She went back to Juanon because um, he, they told her that he had defaulted on the rent and he was going to be to uh, thrown out of the house. And she thought that. Um, if she, if, if she went back, she had the know-how and the resources to, uh, to make sure she, they could keep the house. They basically lied to her and she, she kind of fell for it. 
Um, and she said to me, um, it's because when they told her that, that he had defaulted and the, and the red payments, she, we actually sent money. He sent, she sent money in three envelopes, which first came to me to Santander, and then I had to post back to Spain. Um, and he returned them back. Yeah. And she said to me, it's clear it's inside or outside. I cannot be in between. And this reminded me of this Patrick Williams saying, it's in or out. There is no place in the middle. Yeah? Um, and she said, and she said, I know, we talked a lot before she went. And she said, and I used to tell her, look, after you have a seven-year-old child, you cannot come back and leave her again. This will destroy this child. And she said, I know this is for good. I cannot do that to the children. And once I'm back, I know I cannot leave again. In fact, she left again. She didn't last. She lasted two weeks. Because this time, they wouldn't let her out of the house at all. She managed to keep a, a telephone that I would up the credit. And at 3 in the morning, she'd ring me in the house. So I had my phone by my bed. I would rush into the bathroom with the blanket and write all my field notes. Uh, because, I mean, I'll tell you later, but we, we, we are in trying to do a book together about all this stuff and write together. Um, so she was under much more... Uh, closer watch than before, she couldn't do anything, and she was appalled when Juanon wanted to have sex with her, and she was appalled when her sisters came with a pastor in order to exorcise her. And she said to me, you know, they haven't asked for my permission, I'm 41 year old, uh, I'm 41 year old, I don't want to be exorcised, I can go out, I can do anything on my own, they're constantly watching me, I cannot go on like this. So she left. One morning she just managed to sneak out of the house and left. And finally, she's now started, she's got a solicitor, she has applied for a divorce, and she's trying to get access to her child legally. Now she's really frightened about doing this, yeah? And, uh, and she says, um, um, she really wants her child to know. She says, I want my child to know that I have done my best to have her with me. I'm going to get a job again, and Habib and I will marry, and then he will be able to get a job too. And with two jobs, the lawyer has told me we will get custody. For the moment, I will be happy seeing her once a week. But I tell you, Paloma, I am brave. I am very brave doing this, because I know that when they get the letter from the solicitor, they will want to kill me. And I had one last conversation with Dolores about 10 days ago. Um, and, and she said, Claudia has crossed the final line. And I crossed the line as well because they know I've been helping Claudia. Look, she said, don't ring again. Don't come around. Paloma, uh, I don't want to know if Claudia is alive or dead. If you find out that she's in hospital, don't tell us. If you find out that she's dead, don't tell us. We don't want to know. If, you find out that Juanon, if I find out that Juanon has been in touch with you to find out how she is, I'll have him killed. I'll have my father kill him in my house and the boss. She has ashamed us in front of everybody. That's it. I hope you have a happy life, Paloma, and that your children too. I've enjoyed knowing you. Bye-bye. <laughs> so, um, just my conclusion. I'm just five minutes of the hour. Uh, so, just to finish, um, I want to, to start sort of my, my wrapping up with this quotation from um, Sisi Theodosi, who's an anthropologist working with gypsies in this town called Paracalamos, who's in the Greek-Albanian border. Yeah? And she says that um, these notions of gypsiness as a kind of clearly articulated sense of identity that have kind of dominated uh, the work of anthropologists of gypsies are completely wrong in this. They don't really work in this place. And she says, among the gypsies and the non-gypsies of Paracalamos, she says, I'm quoting here, there is no way of fixing self and other, and therefore no way of clearly recognizing an opposition between them. And she says, many fixed elements, classifications, categories, essentialisms of all sorts are evoked, they are tested and tried out. 
but the outcome seems to be a situation of permanent indecision about them, rather than a coherent and conclusive account about what constitutes gypsiness. And she says that what defines these gypsies' experiences is this condition of being in between, neither one thing nor the other. And what I've been trying to talk about is this being in between, yeah? And the ways in which Claudia and her family work to avoid being in, the, in between, but at the same time reach for this being in between. And sometimes they reach very tentatively, and sometimes they reach with a huge force and huge courage, I think, yeah? And among these people, um, everyday life is very much dominated by a concern with categories and classifications and moral divisions and choices and their aesthetic and kind of emotional dimensions as well. But I think the situation is here is quite different from what C.C. Theodosi describes in Paracalamus because asserting an ambiguous gypsiness is very important. And this drive towards cultural closure is, is constant and it's overwhelming at the same time as it's challenged. And I think this is what I find interesting, yeah? So the gypsy law, the Gitano law, has a very rarefied set of understandings and rules regarding what is gypsy and what is not gypsy. And as a kind of a statement on gypsy identity, it's very strongly present in the lives of these people. And they engage in ways that are not predictable and are not monolithic, yeah? And there is a tension that has effects that are not uniform, yeah, but that reach way into, into the fabric of people's lives. And this is what I have tried to explain. So if you think about these three periods, yeah, in the early 1990s, Claudia and Juanon, her husband, they could imagine kind of alternative lives for themselves to kind of play at being Payo instead of Gitano, Juanon with his national geographics or whatever, Claudia and I in our escapades, going to museums and things like that. But these kind of were periods, I think, which were kind of ludic. They were carved out of real space and real time. And this kind of ludic character of these, of these episodes kind of, in a way, reinforced um, the, the, the ideas about what it was like to be a proper, what she really should be doing as a proper gypsy woman. And then many years later, when with the fight for the school and the protest against the government, again, I think that she actually reinforced the gypsy laws regarding appropriate female behavior. At the same time, she was kind of innovating on the, on, on the kind of on the gypsy mother strike, uh, uh, strike wife role, yeah? And at these times, at both this time, Claudia, her relatives, and other gypsies reflected on what was gypsy and acceptable and what was not gypsy and not acceptable. And they pushed the boundaries and they engaged moral ambiguities. Um, and at both times, though, she was successful in her performance as a gypsy exemplar. And she says, I was on a very high pedestal I could walk with my head high, yeah? Now, in last year, through the, this whole last year, the situation couldn't have been more different. In theory, Juanon was going to wait for her with open arms, even if this made him laughable in the in eyes of the other gypsies. And Dolores and her other sister were desperate to see Claudia return, even knowing how miserable she was going to be when she came back. And they said they were waiting to forgive her. In fact, they didn't really forgive her. Uh, but her attempts at getting her family to be more flexible in their perspective, they kind of failed completely, and their interpretations of, them, of her motivations and of her behavior were completely monolithic. And also, their judgments were also monolithic. And one year after her elopement, not that long ago, um, Dolores told me how this transgression of Claudia cut as deeply as, as at the beginning, and she said to me, this is so big, it's so big that we cannot get used to the idea. 
No matter how much time passes, it will always hurt the same as the first day. Yeah? So when I think about this determination of the family not to compromise, yeah? even though they knew the child was suffering, was having a hard time, missing her mother, and so on. Yeah? And remember how much Claudia you know, missed her children. I remember her holding my child in her arms and crying over my child, yeah? for example, thinking, you know, missing her child with all her heart. Every day, she said to me, every morning when I wake up, I have to make this decision again to stay or to go. Because every morning, I, I wake up crying for my child. Yeah? Uh, I think, I mean, when I think about these two things, the, the family's kind of inability to sort of see anything except their already made up mind, and Claudia's sort of, um, um, her, her sadness, I really kind of this, this uh, I, I, I cannot sort of avoid but to think about this immense power of the gypsy law of this emphasis on cultural closure and this reification of identity. It just seems really powerful and really shaping of people's lives. Yeah? But also at the same time, when I think about Claudia and being so defined in her search for a different kind of life for herself in spite of all her heartache. Yeah? And, and the pressure they put on her to return, and, and, and Juanon wanting her to return even though he was taken for a ride for everybody else because he was being uh, like a non-gypsy. Yeah? Then you also realize the limits of this huge reach. It reaches the gypsy law and this cultural closure reaches all the way, but at the same time, it's not everything in other words. Yeah? So um, this is struggle between Claudia and her family, her agony about her choices, but her success in opening these doors onto new worlds, like she says. I think they show that there is a tug of war that stretches this metonymic link between the individual or the person and this ideal of the gypsy community. And just to finish, I really think that it is this, the fact that her transgression is atypical. This is not something that happens every day among the non-gypsies. And I think it's the detail of Claudia's life, the sadness and the joy of her life, that shows how important this tug of war is in shaping gypsy lives. And I think this tension, yeah, this is, anyway, this is what I think as an anthropologist I want to go on looking at. Mm -hmm.